Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz, and you are my People of the Book. And today we are going to be talking about the saga, those epic books that you just absorb yourself into, that just draw you in and you don't want to do anything else. And I have to say that they remind me of books that were written quite a few years ago. They don't seem to be written as much these days as they were back then. Um, and I do remember when I was a lot younger, before the days of, of Kindle and e-readers and reading on your phone, they were the type of books where you wanted to climb into bed or climb onto a comfortable chair. And, you know, you used to fall asleep reading them and they used to hit you in the face and really wake you up because they were these long, over 500 pages and they were, they were these heavy books and, you know, those were the kind of books that, that we're talking about. The saga. But, but what is a saga? What is, what is a saga? What, but where does the word come from? And, when I started to to look into this, I discovered that that the word saga and it's spelled s a g a it actually originates from the original Swedish and saga the word itself means story or fairy tale in Swedish and the definition of a saga it's a long story obviously and especially about something dramatic or about heroic events. And an example would be a long war story, a long war novel, such as War and Peace. We'll get to that. And another definition comes from the Old Norse, a word saga, also meaning story or tale or history. And it used to refer to specifically epic prose narratives, which were written in Iceland before between 12th and 15th centuries covering the country's history as well as Scandinavia's legendary past. So what makes a good saga? It's usually written on an epic scale. It's long and it's drawn out. It's typically fictional drama. It focuses on, we think typically of a family drama and it's interconnected families. It closely follows fates, fortunes, passions, and the genre tends to track characters through several decades, multifaceted plots, longer time spans. But you do get different types of sagas, not only the family sagas. And there are literary sagas, historical sagas, and just an amusing fact, Google clearly has a very short attention span and isn't into the saga thing. When I, I did a Google search for what is the most popular saga, these questions come up. Does saga mean series? What is the most successful movie series of all time? And then what is Goku's power level? What? I didn't actually check. We're talking sagas today on People of the Book, and there'll be more after this. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. This is People of the Book, and I'm Janice Leibovitz, and today we are talking about sagas. For those who like to get absorbed in a long, involved story, the saga is for you. And when I put the question out there, 
as to what is your favorite saga, who enjoys sagas, a couple of people came back and said, oh, no, hate them, my worst. And um, someone said they prefer short, shorter series, you know, short chapters and um, shorter books. And, yeah, sagas are clearly not everyone's cup of tea. And I think these days when, you know, instant gratification, I mean, people like things short, they like them sharp, they want them now, they want to get through things quickly, and I fully understand that. But I think a lot of readers who like to relax and escape the reality of, of everything that's going on around them and want to absorb in a book, a saga is definitely the way to go. And when I think of, of what what grabs me in a saga, what what do I think of when I think of, of these, these long-absorbed books? There were two that came to mind immediately, and one was The Thornbirds, and Anne Simon also mentioned this. Um, in her message to me. The Thornbirds was the first one that came to mind. And the other one was the Shell Seekers. So let's talk about those first. So the Thornbirds, and if you remember, it, it was originally a book. I think many people think of this as, as a TV series. And, and I do remember this from when I was a lot younger and I'm giving away my age. But we tend to forget when we see these, these epic, TV series or films, we tend to forget they are based on, on books. And when they are put in onto the screen like that, we forget they come from books. And I've discussed this before. But The Thornbirds was a 1977 best-selling novel by the Australian author Colleen McCulloch. McCulloch, I'm probably pronouncing that completely wrong. It was set primarily on a fictional sheep station in the Australian outback named Drowida, which was um, is a place in Ireland. And the story focuses primarily on one family, on the Cleary family, between the years of 1915 and 1969. Um, initially, all the elements of, of, uh, of, uh, of the saga there. And... It's a best-selling book in Australian history. It sold over 33 million copies worldwide. And when it was adapted into that TV miniseries um, in, in March 1983, it actually became the state's state, United States. It was their second highest rated miniseries of all time, second only to Roots. And it, the story is, as I said, about the Cleary family. It begins in the early part of the century, Paddy Cleary moves his wife and their seven children to, to Drowida, the, the sheep station that's owned by his sister. And it ends more than half a century later when the only survivor of the third generation actually sets the course for her life halfway around the world from where she initially comes from. And the central figures in the story are, are Maggie, who is the Cleary's only daughter. They have seven children, this daughter, Maggie, and six sons. And the only man who she truly loves, the stunningly handsome and ambitious priest, Ralph de Bricassar, and who can forget Richard Chamberlain. And I think this, this launched him. And he, he's been shamed. And that he's been moved to this remote outback parish, but he does eventually redeem himself and he lands up, um, moving quite high up and, and he, he works in, in the Vatican eventually. And 
Maggie never actually can escape the love that she has for Ralph, but she she can't move away from from this this sheep station, this this Droidar that is part of her her very very being. It's part of her soul, but the distance doesn't dim the feelings that she has for Ralph. And the characters in the book, um, Paddy, her father, who who has, has the memories that he's got, his dutiful wife, and you know all the sons who just give to the land. That's that's where they are bound. And Maggie's children and the land itself plays its own role and is like a character in the book. All the elements of, of a saga in this this book, the Thornbirds. And the other one that initially came to mind, as I said, was The Shell Seekers by Rosamond Pilcher. And I know I've spoken about this before. Um, a 1987 novel by Rosamond Pilcher, one of her most famous bestsellers, nominated by the British public in 2003 as one of the top 100 novels um, of, of, the, of the UK. It sold more than 5 million copies worldwide, worldwide and was adapted for the stage and it was a TV film twice. Um, again, I've, as I said, I've discussed it before on the show. I'm not going to discuss it in depth, but it's about an artist's daughter, um, Penelope. She's looking back on her life, her bohemian childhood, her unhappy marriage, and the man who she really did love. She's brought up her three children. She's learned to accept them for who and what they are. But she doesn't really want to settle sweetly and quietly into pensioned or old age. And she discovers that her father's most treasured possession, his painting, The Shell Seekers, is now worth a small fortune. And she needs to decide what she's going to do about that. And it's about her family, the decisions they need to make what binds them, what what could tear them apart. And, I mean, it's a bestseller and something that immediately comes to mind when you think of a saga. Kathy Kaler, thank you for your message. Any of Ken Follett's historical sagas, you said that you relish them. And I have to say, I have not read any of them. When I see the size of them, I mean, pillars of the earth, and I know we actually spoke about this the other day, and I know you have urged me to read these because they are fabulous, and I know that they are so, so popular. People anticipate these books, and I think he has one that is coming out shortly, a new one coming out shortly. They are absolute tones. And the research and the, the effort that he puts into these is incredible. But if we're talking sagas, we, we really cannot not mention Ken Follett because he is the master of the saga. This is People of the Book, and today we are talking sagas. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. You're listening to People of the Book. I'm Janice Leibovitz, and today we are talking about the saga, that long, involved, detailed story that draws you in and doesn't let go. And if we're talking about the saga, I have to mention Outlander. Who doesn't love Outlander? I mean, okay, I'm talking about the series. I'm talking about, you know who I'm talking about. 
But Outlander started off as a series of historical fantasy novels by an American author by the name of Diana Gabaldon. And she began the first volume of the series, which is called Outlander, the, the first book of the series. She started this in the late 1980s, and that first book was published in 1991. And subsequently, she has published seven of the planned 10 volumes and one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. She's published eight, sorry, eight of the planned 10 volumes. Um, the most recent one was published in 2014. Actually, not so recent, but the good news is for fans of the actual book series who have, have read the books, the fantastic news is that the ninth book in the series will be coming out in November of this year. So next month, it's being published by Penguin Random House, and it's called Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone. So that is very exciting news for fans of the Outlander series. Look out for that. It's going to be in stores next month. And for those who don't know, I mean, it's a, it's a really fascinating epic series and it's a very ambitious series it's a, an ambitious project I mean the, the research I cannot even imagine it focuses on a 20th century British nurse by the name of Claire Randall who time travels to 18th century Scotland she is just back from the war she's reunited with her husband on a second honeymoon, and she walks through a standing stone in an ancient circle, a stone circle um, in the British Isles, and suddenly finds herself an outlander, a Sassenach, in a Scotland that is torn by war and raiding border clans in 1743. And she finds herself catapulted into the intrigues of a world that threatens her life and may indeed shatter her heart. She is marooned amid danger, passion, violence, and discovers that the only chance for her safety lies in Jamie Fraser, a gallant young Scots warrior. And she then finds herself torn between very different men, two very different men, and two irreconcilable lives. It, it's fascinating. I know that people are completely absorbed in the, the TV series. It's, I think it's available on Netflix, possibly also on Showmax. And, but the books themselves, the detail that is in the books is incredible. If you can get through them, they are long, detailed, absorbing. Yes, it's easier to watch the series, but the books are amazing. This is the Outlander series. The first book is called Outlander. The next one is Dragonfly in Amber. Then there is Voyager. Then Drums of Autumn. Then The Fiery Cross. Then A Breath of Snow and Ashes. Then An Echo in the Bone. Then Written in My Own Heart's Blood. And the new one coming out next month, Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone. And as I say, there's been a huge gap between that last one that came out in 2014 and the next one expected shortly so yes look out for that and if we're talking about epic books turned into 
more than epic TV series. If I said to you, A Song of Ice and Fire, would you know what I was talking about? Well, fans definitely would know that I'm talking about A Game of Thrones, written by George R. R. Martin. I mean, a series of more than epic fantasy novels written by by George R. R. Martin. He began the first volume in 1991. It was eventually published in 1996. And he initially thought that this was going to be a trilogy. And he he landed up writing seven, seven books. And to be honest, I haven't watched Game of Thrones. Okay, so if you want to switch off right now because you don't consider anything I say after this to be of any value, I fully understand because I think there are two separate uh, groups of people, those who watch Game of Thrones and understand it and those who don't. The books have sold something like over 90 million copies worldwide and that was as of April 2019. So probably maybe double that by now. Um, it's a morally based in a morally ambiguous world. Um, it, it brings up questions concerning loyalty, pride, sexuality, piety, the morality of violence. And these are the issues that frequently arise in the book. But what is it actually about? Because I know that for, for those of us who, who are not in the group that um, actually understand it or watch it, we just don't get it. So this is a summary that I found, and it says, Long ago, in a time forgotten, a preternatural, preternatural event threw the seasons out of balance. In a land where summers can last decades and winters a lifetime, Trouble is brewing. The cold is returning. I guess that's that whole winter is coming thing. And in the frozen wastes to the north of Winterfell, sinister and supernatural forces are massing beyond the kingdom's protective wall. At the center of the conflict lie the Starks of Winterfell, a family as harsh and unyielding as the land they were born to. Sweeping from a land of brutal cold to a distant summertime kingdom of Epicurean plenty, here is a tale of lords and ladies, soldiers and sorcerers, assassins and bastards who come together in a time of grim omens. Here, an enigmatic band of warriors bear swords of no human metal, a tribe of fierce wildlings carry men off into madness, a cruel young dragon prince barters his sister to win back his throne, and a determined woman undertakes the most treacherous of journeys. Amid plots and counterplots, tragedy and betrayal, victory and terror, the fate of the Starks, their allies and their enemies, hangs perilously in the balance as each endeavours to win that deadliest of conflicts, the Game of Thrones. And that was the best summary I could find. And... Quite honestly, I still don't really understand it, but okay. The books in A Song of Ice and Fire in order are as follows. A Game of Thrones, A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, A Feast for Crows, A Dance with Dragons, The Winds of Winter, and A Dream of Spring. And 
they are, it's an epic saga. I mean, it's ongoing. It's fabulous. Even though I haven't watched, even though I haven't read them, you, you cannot dispute the fact that it has every element of the epic saga. So that is a song of ice and fire. On to another pretty heavy one, which is War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. And apparently this is also, um, you know, a literary work. I mean, I don't know anyone who's actually read it. And this is one of those books when, when you see those, those things on social media where it says, you know, books that you say you've read, but you haven't, or books that everyone says they've read, but they haven't. And I think this one comes up often. Um, mixed with chapters on history, philosophy, it was first published as a serial before being published as a complete book in 1869. And it's regarded as one of Tolstoy's finest literary achievements and remains an internationally praised classic of world literature, I'm assuming by those who managed to get through it. Um, Tolstoy himself hesitated to call War and Peace a novel. He regarded Anna Karenina as his first true novel, not War and Peace. And he says it's not a novel, he said, because he's not with us anymore. Not a novel, even less is it a poem, and still less a historical chronicle. Um, large sections of it, especially the later chapters, apparently, are philosophical discussions rather than narrative. Um, apparently, it broadly focuses on Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. It follows three of the most well-known characters in literature, Pierre Bezukhov, the illegitimate son of a count who is fighting for his inheritance and yearning for spiritual fulfillment, Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, who leaves his family behind to fight in the war against Napoleon, and Natasha Rostov, the beautiful young daughter of a nobleman who intrigues both men. And as Napoleon's army invades, Tolstoy brilliantly follows characters from diverse backgrounds, peasants and nobility, civilians and soldiers, as they struggle with the problems unique to their era, their history and their culture. And as the novel progresses, these characters transcend their specificity, becoming some of the most moving and human figures in world literature. I can honestly say it's not anything that I would ever be reading. But when you search for saga, this always comes up. In every search I did, War and Peace was there. It was listed. So the epic saga, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. The other one that, that always came up as well was Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell. And first published in 1936, set in, in the South, the American South, South during the American Civil War and the Reconstruction era, depicting the struggles of Scarlett O'Hara, spoiled daughter of a well-to-do plantation owner. And she needs to do everything she can to claw her way out of poverty, following Sherman's destructive march to the sea. This was popular with, with American readers from the outset. The top American fiction bestseller 
1936 and 1937, and um, more than 30 million copies printed worldwide. Um, a controversial reference point for subsequent writers in the South, both black and white, and scholars at American universities refer to, interpret, and study it in their writings. Um, incidentally, it was the only novel ever published by Margaret Mitchell in her lifetime, which is quite interesting because one would think that she would have gone on to, to write more. She was not obviously a successful writer. Um, and who can forget Clark Gable and Vivian Lee in the 1939 film, considered to be one of the greatest films ever made and also received an Academy Award for Best Picture at the 12th Annual Academy Awards. That's gone with the wind. Um, the Bronze Horseman by Paulina Simons. A beautiful, beautiful saga. It started off the first book. It, it's actually a trilogy. And the description is the golden skies, the translucent twilight, the white nights, all hold the promise of youth, of love, of eternal renewal. The war has not yet touched the city of fallen grandeur or the lives of two sisters, Tatiana and Dasha Metanova, who share a single room in a cramped apartment with their brother and parents. Their world is turned upside down when Hitler's armies attack Russia and begin their unstoppable blitz to Leningrad. Yet there is light in the darkness. Tatiana meets Alexander, a brave young officer in the Red Army. Strong and self-confident, yet guarding a mysterious and troubled past, he's drawn to Tatiana and she to him. Starvation, desperation and fear soon grip their city during the terrible winter of the merciless German siege. Tatiana and Alexander's impossible love threatens to tear the Metanova family apart and expose the dangerous secret Alexander so carefully protects, a secret as devastating as the war itself, as the lovers are swept up in the brutal tides that will change the world and their lives forever. This was a beautiful book. It was a beautiful saga. It, it followed Tatiana and Alexander's lives. There were two books that followed, and sadly, after that first stunning book, it just went downhill after that. The second book was called Tatiana and Alexander. And after the excitement of that first book and waiting for that second book and being so excited that there was a second book in the series, most of it was a repetition of the first book. It was very disappointing. And I have to say that the third book, The Summer Garden, A Love Story, I didn't actually bother with after the disappointment of that second book. So this is a series called The Bronze Horseman. Um, as I said, a trilogy. The first book is wonderful. It's so enjoyable. It's magnificent. But um, read the second two at, you, at your own risk. To get on to something quite a bit lighter, not so much with the wars and the, and all of that, all the heavy stuff. Let's get on to something called The Most Fun We Ever Had, which is a lot more recent, 2019. A multi-generational novel where four adult daughters of a Chicago couple who are still madly in love after 40 years 
recklessly ignite old rivalries until a long-buried secret threatens to shatter the lives they've built. When Marilyn Connolly and David Sorensen fall in love in the 1970s, they are blithely ignorant of all that's to come, as we often are when we first meet, fall in love, and get married. By 2016, their four radically different daughters are each in a state of unrest. Wendy, who is widowed and young, soothes herself with booze and younger men. Violet, a litigator turned stay-at-home mom, battles anxiety and self-doubt when the darkest part of her past resurfaces. Liza, a neurotic and newly tenured professor, finds herself pregnant with a baby she's not sure she wants by a man she's not sure she loves. And Grace, the dawdling youngest daughter, begins living a lie that no one in her family even suspects. Above it all, the daughters share their lingering fear that they will never find a love quite like their parents. As the novel moves through the tumultuous years, year following the arrival of Jonah Bent, given up by one of the daughters in a closed adoption 15 years before, we are shown the rich and varied tapestry of the Sorensen's past years, marred by adolescence, infidelity and resentment, but also the transcendent moments of joy that make everything else worthwhile. And this sounds fabulous. It's more recent, and it's called The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo. You're listening to People of the Book, and today we are talking about sagas. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. This is People of the Book. I'm Janice Leibovitz, and today we are talking about sagas, those lovely books that just you want to just dive in and you never want them to end. I mean, they're long enough, but those family sagas, multi-generational sagas, historical sagas that just take you places, take you away from where you are, amazing books. And funnily enough, so many of them have been transformed into films, TV series. And I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I did a show on what's better, the film or the book. And I mean, the jury's still out on that. But Another one that came up when I did this search and I was doing some research on what is a saga and what makes a good saga was fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe by Fanny Flagg. And there was a film sometime back just called Fried Green Tomatoes. And the novel itself was, um, it came out in 1987 and it beautifully weaved together the past and the present through a blossoming friendship between Evelyn uh, who was a middle-aged housewife, and Ninny Threadgood, an elderly woman living in a nursing home. And every week, Evelyn visits Ninny, who tells us stories about her youth in Whistlestop, Alabama. And um, it's amazing how all the good stories happen in the South, where her sister-in-law, Iggy, and her friend Ruth ran a cafe, ordering, offering good barbecue and good coffee and all kinds of love and laughter and even an occasional murder. And these stories, along with Ninny's friendship, enable Evelyn to begin a new, satisfying life while allowing the people and stories of Ninny's youth to live on. The book was, as I said, made into a film in 1991, and it explored a whole range of themes, family and aging, lesbianism, and the dehumanizing effects of racism on 
both races, all different races, blacks, whites, it, it, it did look at, at those two specific races. As we know, there's a whole gamut of, of races, emotions, but these were the themes that it explored. It was such a beautiful film. And again, giving away my age, they just don't seem to make them like that anymore, do they? Yeah, I sound old, I know. A beautiful, beautiful saga that has been recommended to me so many times that I keep meaning to get to, and I just haven't managed it yet, is the T-Rose saga by Jennifer Donnelly. And everyone keeps telling me I must read it. And this is, I mean, I keep hearing about it. People just say it's amazing, it's wonderful. No one ever told me what it was about. So for the first time, I actually did some proper research into it and it does sound absolutely stunning you wouldn't think I had a whole ton of books that I need to get through because I really want to read these it's described as a towering old-fashioned story imbued with a modern sensibility of a family's destruction of murder and revenge of love lost and won again and of one determined woman's quest to survive and triumph. So it's a series of three books. The first book starts in East London, and I'm not talking about East London, South Africa. I'm talking about the East of London in England, 1888. It's a place of shadow and light where thieves, whores, and dreamers mingle, where children play in the cobbled streets by day and a killer stalks at night and where bright hopes meet the darkest truths. And here by the whispering waters of the Thames, a bright and defiant young woman dares to dream of a life beyond tumble-down wharves, gaslit alleys, and the grim and crumbling dwellings of the poor. And this woman is Fiona Finnegan, a worker in a tea factory who hopes to own her own shop one day, together with her lifelong love, Joe Bristow, a costermonger son, and I didn't get the chance to actually look at what a costermonger is. With nothing but their faith in each other to spur them on, Fiona and Joe struggle, save, and sacrifice to achieve their dreams. But her dreams are shattered when the actions of a dark and brutal man take from her nearly everything and everyone she holds dear. Fearing her own death at this man's hands, she's forced to flee London for New York, and there, her indomitable spirit and the ghosts of her past propel her to rise from a modest West End shopfront to the top of Manhattan's tea trade. And this apparently is an unforgettable, unforgettable novel. The second book is called The Winter Rose, which starts 12 years since that murderous figure stalked the alleys and courts of Whitechapel. And it starts off in the summer of 1900. And the east of London is still poor and still brutal and still a shadow city. And among the reformers is an idealistic young woman named India Selwyn Jones, recently graduated from medical school. And with the help of her influential fiancé, Freddie Litton, who is an up-and-coming liberal MP, she works to shut down the area's opium, opium dens that are destroying people. And her selfless activities better her patients' lives and bring her huge gratification, but unfortunately also bring her into direct conflict with 
the East London ruling crime lord by the name of Sid Malone. She's not good for business, and Malone wants her out. But against all odds, guess what? India and Sid fall in love. Different in every way. They still share one common, one thing in common. They are wounded souls. And India's fiance still wants to marry her, but he wants to gain her family's fortune. This sounds amazing. This is the second book in the T-Rose series, The Winter Rose. And then there's the third book, The Wild Rose, which starts I will tell you, in 1914, when World War I is looming on the horizon and women are now fighting for the right to vote. And Jennifer Donnelly once again places her vivid, memorable characters, continuing the story of the Finnegan family, fabulous details of that that period in time of history, and apparently a highly satisfying conclusion to this incredible, incredible and unforgettable trilogy, trilogy that began with the tea rose and continued with the winter rose. And I don't know if they could be read in their own right as individual reads, but it sounds like they would be a lot better read as the trilogy, the tea rose, the winter rose, and then the wild rose. They sound like a stunning saga. I love it when you this is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. You're listening to People of the Book. I am Janice Leibovitz, and today we have been talking about sagas. And before I wrap up, I think if we're talking sagas, I would be remiss if I did not mention the Seven Sisters series, the epitome of the saga and one of the most current ones that has hit our shelves. And Michelle Mosselson also mentioned this one. In fact, she says that she loves all sagas, especially historical ones. They are just yummy. Her words. I love that description. Thanks, Michelle. Um, to talk about the Seven Sisters series, wow, what an ambitious series. And I have to say, when I hear of, of an author setting out to write such a, a long series of books, and I know I thought this when Jeffrey Archer set out to write his his series of seven books, I'm always quite worried, oh, my gosh, some, what if something happens? And that is what happened with Lucinda Riley. As we know, she passed away quite recently, and – you know, it was it was with much sadness that we we wondered what is going to happen to the end of the series of the book. It was going to be a series, obviously, Seven Sisters, and she had then announced that she was going to add a book onto the series called Atlas. It was going to be about the father who had adopted these seven sisters, past Salt. It was going to be called Atlas and then it was announced that she had discussed this with her son. There were notes. There were there was the outline of this book. And it is going to be released, I think it's in 2023. So if you go onto Lucinda Riley's website, I don't know if people do that kind of thing. 
she says that when she first had the idea of writing the series of books based on the seven sisters of the, the Pleiades, she had no idea where it would lead her. And she was attracted to the fact that each of these mythological sisters, according to their legends, they were each strong females. And she wanted to celebrate the achievements of women, especially in the past, where so often their contribution to making our world what it is today was overshadowed by more frequently documented achievements of men. And she has created the series of women, both past and present. She, The historical detail, the sweeping saga that she writes in each book, as well as the way the saga comes together when you look at the series, she traveled around the world, she followed in the footsteps of her factual and fictional characters to research. It's really quite incredible. And the detail that she followed, the facts that she discovered were quite incredible. So I'm going to end off by saying that the Seven Sisters as the modern saga that combines the historical fact is really quite epic and something to consider when one thinks of what a saga is. I think she touches on it ticks all the the boxes for the elements of what a saga needs and I'll leave it with that I'll leave it at that I hope you agreed with what my definition of a saga is whether you enjoy them whether you prefer something shorter everyone's a reader you love the books and that's what we're here for until next week take care of yourself take care of each other if you have People in your house between the age of 12 and 17, they can be vaccinated from the 20th of October, which is very exciting news. So get vaccinated, wear a mask and read a book.